Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Butlers podcast. I am Mike Watkins, and with me, as always, is my good friend and business partner, Matt Burke. Hello. And each week, we try and bring you an intellectually honest discussion about news and events affecting Bitcoin. If you like our content, please like, subscribe, and share. Well, Matt, we have had a very interesting few days in the world of banking with uh, two very large banks in the U.S. collapsing, one being Signature Bank and the big one being Silicon Valley Bank. So, Matt, you really know Mm -hmm. a lot about banking. Of all the people I know, I think you probably know more about banking than just about anyone. So if you don't mind, walk people through what happened first with Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, so... The bank started to have issues really at the end of last year. Um, there's a number of things that kind of went into all of this, but the the short version of it is that you had raising rising interest rates over the course of last year. And you had a situation where banks were holding treasury bonds that had a yield that was considerably lower than the going rate. So that by nature makes the value, the face value of those bonds worth less. So towards the end of last year, there was a decline in deposits and they had to be covered. Um, And Silicon Valley Bank had to sell bonds at about a $1.8 billion loss. So they disclosed that last week that they took this loss in the fourth quarter. And I think that started to get people nervous. And what started happening was essentially a bank run where people who had deposits at Silicon Valley Bank moved to get those deposits out of the bank. And that caused the bank to have to sell off more assets um, at a loss. And they were in the process of looking at how to shore up that shortfall, primarily through um, selling additional equity, you know, stock in the bank to cover a, a good portion of that. Well, that didn't really materialize in the way that they had hoped. Um, the demand for that just wasn't quite as high. And before it could even get resolved or someone could step in and buy the bank um, on Friday, the FDIC took over as receiver of the bank and basically shut the bank down. And over the weekend, they said that they would be covering all of the deposits, not just up to the $250,000 per account limit that the FDIC sets. Um, So the government essentially said they're going to uh, prevent any depositors from from losing their banks. Now, there's, there's a lot of other interesting nuance to, to how and why this went down. Um, Silicon Valley Bank obviously is a really technology and startup centric bank. Um, you know, this is a Bay Area institution that's been around for many, many years and tons of startups and venture capitalists and tech companies all relied on, as, on SVB as their bank. Um, and so to kind of compound the problem over the past year, we've seen the tech sector take a big hit. We've seen a lot of layoffs in the tech sector. We've seen a somewhat of a contraction of investment in that space. And so as the deposits at the bank were kind of going down because these companies were burning through their cash faster, um, it kind of set up this whole uh, event that happened last week. It kind of came to a head last week. So, you know, there, there's a number of of institutions and people you could point to in this case. Um, part of it is the the management of the bank um, decided that they would be going in, you know, they would be buying treasury bonds um, at, you know, historically low interest rates without really considering the fact that if rates were to go up significantly, the value of those investments was, would go down accordingly. Um, so that was one kind of area of mismanagement. Additionally, you had regulators, primarily the Federal Reserve of San Francisco, um, that they were really the the, regu- the primary regulators for um, Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate, um, and and for whatever reason, it seems like maybe they didn't quite have their eye on the ball in terms of what was uh, happening at, at these institutions. And so, I think there's there's some, you know, 
some questions there as to what were they doing. But then also you can look at what did the government do to kind of get the banks into this position? You've got, you know, if you go back, say two, three years, we had so much stimulus money being dumped into the economy. Um, basically the government passed these bills that just printed money and blew it into the economy. And you saw Silicon Valley banks deposits go from like 67 million to, um, to over 200 million or almost 200 million. It basically tripled over the course of a, of a few years. And that was in large part due to all of the money that was being put into the economy. That's now going into, you know, different, companies and institutions where they've got way more money than they ever had. And so now they have to figure out where to put it. Um, and the idea is that if you can, if you can invest in, in assets that are going to yield, um, yield you something, but then you can loan that money out to your, uh, to your borrowers at a higher rate, you make a spread there. Um, and also if you're not paying out money on deposits, but that money's sitting in something earning a yield, then there's an arbitrage play there. So that's how banks in a lot of ways can make money. Well, what happened was by putting all this money into the economy, the gave the bank an incentive to invest in all of these treasuries, which, you know, there's, no one's ever gotten fired for buying U.S. Treasuries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, really sure. Really, um, but when you have interest rates rising at that rate, it just craters the value of the underlying paper. So um, that's that's essentially what happened. And then on top of it, now you've got the government coming in and saying that they're going to cover the deposit. So you've got you know what I call like a moral hazard issue, where the government is giving these institutions an incentive to engage in behavior that's going to cause problems. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where, where it landed. And now, you know, I think that, and then signature bank, to be honest, I'm not really sure um, why signature bank was shut down so quickly. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of people that know a lot more about it than me agree. I mean, Barney Frank, who was the co-author of the, you know, the famous Dodd Frank, uh, legislation that came out of the financial crisis and really put a lot of uh, additional regulation and scrutiny on financial institutions is on the board of Signature Bank. And he came out and said that, you know, there was no fundamental reason that he could see why this needed to be shut down. And it was, there was somewhat of a run on deposits, but the bank was not insolvent and given enough time and the ability to liquidate what they needed to, um, they in theory shouldn't have had an issue covering those deposits yet uh, the FDIC went ahead and, and took over and shut them down. All right, Matt, a lot to unpack there. Uh, and I thought you brought up a number of really interesting points there. So I, I want to make sure that I can kind of simplify this enough so that I can understand it. So the, the, the first thing that I heard you mention was that th this, this happened in fourth quarter of, uh, 2022. Well, in fourth quarter of 2022, Silicon Valley Bank took a 1.8 billion dollar loss on the sale of its some of its bond holdings, and right. they announced that in their Q disclosures that that came out recently. So it just kind of right. came to light. Um, but yeah, it, it started in the fourth quarter. Right. We got the news of the fourth quarter around March, right? Mm -hmm. And so when this when this news that happened actually started last year came out, then people started to freak out a bit. Right. Right. Yep. And I know that. Uh, and so after people saw that, you said that people got spooked a bit. Like they said, whoa, we just got this disclosure from the bank. They lost 1.8 billion in the fourth quarter. And we get people understood why, what the problem was with them losing it, because uh, that problem was that they had a lot of cash that they had to deploy because their their deposits went they tripled or quadrupled from like 40 million to said 67 million to about 200 million that's right right so like a triple but that's not not 200 million sorry 200 billion billion so they had an extra 130 billion or so that they had to deploy and they did what a good bank is supposed to do right which is to buy treasury bonds mm -hmm. right 
And at the time they bought these treasury bonds, the bank, the overnight lending rate was like what 0.25 percent. Yeah, the, I think the like, yield on those bonds was like 1.8 percent. Um, right. That's my point. Is that that they they were making a that was a good interest rate at the time. It was a pretty I wouldn't say a super aggressive interest rate at the time, but it was a good interest rate at the time. And it was supposed to be kind of a golden rock solid where to put your money, right? I mean, there's sure. it's considered kind of as good as cash, right? It is considered a uh, a, a cash-like instrument. In a, in cash-like instrument, exactly. It's, you know, it's very high up on the balance sheet. Right. So then, then the Fed started spiking their interest rates, right? Mm-hmm. Now, a serious question here. Wouldn't everyone see this coming? And I know people did see this coming, but wouldn't if you're in the banking world and you have historic low interest rates and you know the Fed told you what they're going to do. We all know there's that Wall Street has predicted where they're going to get to. And even if they're wrong, they're wrong by a half a point, maybe a point. So everyone knows that when the rates were basically zero, they were going to go up to at least about 5%. Right. Would you, so would you agree yeah. on that? Yeah. That, that 1.8% turned into 4.8%. Right. But, but my point is that isn't that something that the Fed should factor into their decision? That well, if they raise rates like this, then, then they're – well, I'll tell you why they don't factor in it because – Nothing happens if if there's enough time for the bonds to mature, right? Well, it, you have this perfect storm, okay? So, uh, what I think you're, what I think the answer to the question you're posing is 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 that the Fed was really in a conundrum because they had a choice. They could either they could either raise mm -hmm. the rates and try to cool mm -hmm. off some of the inflation that mm -hmm. we were seeing, which mm -hmm. started with all of the money printing. Mm -hmm. um, or so they could either raise the rates and and cool the inflation, or they could keep the rates you know stable or raise them less. But you're going to see a bigger spike in inflation, and when that inflationary spike gets so far out of control, uh, you know that's a that's a whole other set of problems that that they were trying to avoid. So they were trying to avoid two different problems that had conflicting solutions. Right. And we look, we people in the Bitcoin world have been talking that the Fed is caught between a rock and a hard place for as long as I can remember. This is not new. I mean, this, this goes back many, many years, but it's certainly been on the forefront of discussion for the last 24 months, meaning it's, it's openly discussed. It's it's frequently discussed. There's no secret to it if you've been paying attention for at any point during the past two years. And so then sure. when it happens, people act surprised. I, I'm just I'm, I'm just a bit perplexed here in that it, wouldn't everyone know, like if you've been around for one of these cycles before, wouldn't, or even if you haven't, if you just understood the math, wouldn't you know that this was inevitable and that uh, you just had to kind of hope you saw it coming faster than the next guy, which maybe Peter Thiel did in this. Situation. Right. Although it seems like, you know, he was still moving money out of the bank, you know, last Thursday, the day before it got shut down. So I think that it's one of those things where you could, you could, you know, hypothesize that it would happen, but it's hard to, first of all, human nature doesn't want you to believe that it actually is happening. That's a weird thing. I right? know it's so human nature. So weird to that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't, th you know, I think to some extent it only happens when it's too late mm -hmm. or almost too late mm -hmm. at that mm -hmm. point, you know, you get the contagion and it's just like this, this snowball effect where it's just, you got this kind of last straw that, that causes everybody to panic and run on the bank. And that's when somebody, you know, with authority has to step in and say, we're not going to allow this to happen, which is essentially what happened here. Okay. Now, but, but yeah. uh, sorry, no, but why isn't this going to happen in other banks? Like, well, why, I think why, why what, would this be limited to these two or three banks, depending how you look at it? Well, I, I don't know that it will be limited to just these. I think there are other banks that are, that are suffering in this, in the same way, 
But when you compare a bank like Silicon Valley Bank, which I believe was the 16th largest bank in the world um, at the in time, the world? I mean, in the country, the sorry, okay. in the US, okay. um, you know, you compare its 200 and so 200 or so billion in assets to, you know, a Bank of America that's got three trillion in assets. Um, those huge banks, the banks of America, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Truist, mm -hmm. all of these banks are mm -hmm. so enormous and so diversified that they don't face the same pressure that a bank like Silicon Valley Bank does because their deposit base is very concentrated in a specific sector. So it just so happens that they're so heavy in tech and startups and those spaces were the ones getting hit the hardest in the economy right now. I mean, you've seen pretty much every tech company's had, you know, serious layoffs in the past six months. You've seen that there's been a contraction in investment into new companies. Um, you know, VCs are keeping money on the side because they don't know if there's going to be a recession coming. Um, so I think that this bank was uniquely vulnerable based on other things in kind of the macro economy. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. We're going to have to see how this plays out. I could, I could definitely see a situation where regional banks get hurt by this. And then, you know, I've, I talked to a number of people just coincidentally today that are not really into, they're not into the world of finance in any way. They're just people I work with. And the talk was, I'm kind of freaked out with what's going on with the banks. And I've never heard these people talk about anything having to do with finances or the economy or anything like that. And I just think that we've, we've seen this before, I think in some ways with the, uh, the protest in Canada where the Canadian government started seizing people's bank accounts mm -hmm. and, um, and then people started using Bitcoin. So we saw like a, them turning towards Bitcoin at that point. Like people got this idea in their head, like, wait a second, the bank can actually like, they can just take my money. Like I, there's nothing I can do about it. And uh, I think that got in the public consciousness a bit. And then we see it here and you see it even when like uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which has a lot of, I'm going to say, very affluent depositors. Sure. Right. I mean, it's. I bet the average individual, the banks of Silicon Valley Bank, is is uh, significantly more wealthy than the average deposit of the banks of Bank of America. Yeah, and I would imagine that a large percentage of those accounts are well above the the FDIC limit of two hundred fifty thousand. Absolutely, exactly where I was going is that yeah. you know they've got they're just a lot of ways. There's there's a there's a weird thing going on here and I think it gets people kind of freaked out and people will not be not getting freaked out nationwide. Like once you start getting people's heads, uh, let me try and be clear with this. Once you start getting people's heads, there could be a problem with the banks or a problem then, with that. I forget. They don't care what the, what the reason is. If there's a problem with them accessing their money, mm -hmm. that's the problem. Yes. But I'm saying like people, don't really think about when people start to uh, be concerned that their money might not be safe in the bank, people, society starts to unravel in some ways. Sure. Maybe that's a bit harsh, but, but people are, I'll put it this way. The banks start to unravel in a lot of ways. If people start to lose faith in the banks and that's what the banks are afraid of because is there a bank on the planet that can handle a run on the bank? I mean, Maybe. not, not, it depends not how fast the run end. happens. Right. 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 You know, but, but for the most part, the, the, there's a level of incongruency between the short term holdings and the long term or the short term obligations and the, and the long term holdings, meaning that you've got mm -hmm. short term deposits that are demand deposits. Anybody can come in at any time and say, give me my money. But, because of the nature of fractional reserve banking, where you don't have to actually hold all of that money in a vault with someone's name on it, mm -hmm. um, you know, that that money gets invested in things that are not as easy to liquidate 
as it is for somebody to say, I want my money right now. So you, mm -hmm. you get into these situations where somebody, where people come into the bank and even though on paper, the bank may be fully viable and solvent, um, they still don't necessarily have the ability to, to give you the cash that you need because that cash is sitting in other instruments. Mm -hmm. It's a crazy system. And I think it's worth tying in Bitcoin here because this was, this is one of the problems that Bitcoin is there to solve. You know, when they talk about, you know, the meme Bitcoin fixes this, this is definitely one of the things that Bitcoin fixes because when you hold Bitcoin, particularly if you hold it, um, in cold storage, not if you have it on exchange. If you have your Bitcoin on exchange, you're basically dealing with it's a bank. bank. Right. It's a bank. It's you, it's not your Bitcoin. So if you have Bitcoin on exchange, you need to get it off an exchange. It's not real Bitcoin. But if you are holding Bitcoin off an exchange in cold storage and you're managing your private keys, then that Bitcoin is yours. You don't have to ask for permission. You don't have to worry about a run on Bitcoin. It's just yours. Mm -hmm. And you, one could argue that it's a much better way to store um, the fruits of your labors, to store your money, right? Mm -hmm. That if I give, let's just say for argument's sake, I have a, a million dollars. And I say, okay, I have a million dollars. I just inherited it. I don't know what to do with a million dollars. I'm put safest place you can put a million dollars in the bank, right? That's, that's part of the culture. And so you go to the bank and then you, if you didn't know anything about a bank and you ask the bank some questions, you'd probably think the bank was kind of crazy, right? <laughs> so it's like, I'm going to give you my million dollars and how do I get it out? Well, I can only get it out during these hours and these times and I have to go through these things. And then you said to the bank, well, what are you going to do with this money that I give you? And they say, oh, we're going to find people that want to borrow your money and we're going to lend it to them. And we're going to make money on the money that you give us. And then it's the even crazier asshole, than that. It's even crazier. Do I, that... do I get to, do I get any of that money? Well, no, you don't get any money. Actually, a lot of time you get to pay us to hold your money. Well, you also, you forgot a, a, an interesting little twist to that, which is that I give you the million dollars. What are you going to do with the money? Oh, well, we're going to take a million dollars and we're going to loan out nine more million. Right, right, right. <laughs> so yeah, it's not just the money. So, so you've got that leverage at play where the the fractional reserve by its own nature means that there's the, you know, the bank has more money that it hasn't received yet than what it owes to you. So it's, um, it's an even more precarious situation than what you described because you've got the ability to make these loans out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and then you think about what you would get, and it does sound kind of crazy. And then you think about what you get with Bitcoin, which is very simply that you buy a scarce resource that you actually own, that with the power of this incredible computer network and um, math and cryptography that's just hard for the human mind to understand, you actually own your money. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Cheers. Right. It's, uh, you know, if you put your money in a bank at that point, the bank, you have an IOU from the bank, you don't have money. Mm -hmm. And with Bitcoin, um, that is not the case. The money that you are holding in Bitcoin, um, nobody else can loan it out. Nobody else can put it somewhere where you don't want it to go. It's just absolutely yours and you have full control over it. And you don't have, if you want to send it to somebody else, you don't have to do it between Monday and Friday from nine to four and you can do it on holidays and you don't have to have anyone's permission other than your own to use it as a, as a means of, of exchange. Okay. So in, so I'm this guy, I, I've, I've lived in for the sake of this discussion, you know, it's a guy who lives in the woods all of a sudden inherits a million dollars. Unfrozen right? caveman. Yeah, something like that, right? He, yeah. Someone discovers him on a hiking trip. He's lived out in the woods uh, with a small clan for <laughs> 400 years, right? And some somehow discovers that he's, he's owed a million dollars, and he goes to a bank. 
and has that whole thing. And so on the one hand, you've got this idea that I'm going to give you this money, this million dollars, and you're not going to put it somewhere safe. You're actually going to lend it to people that I don't know. Right. And you're going to do that multiple times so that even though I give you 1 million, you're actually going to lend out 9 million of my 1 million. <laughs> and then if I want my money back, I have to come into the bank and fill out a bunch of forms and wait 48 hours and show you identification. And, and if I follow all the rules, then I can get my money back and I can only do that at certain times. And it takes maybe an hour or two to do it. And it has to be approved by somebody at the bank. And if it's moving a large amount, it's it's you has to be approved outside of the bank, right? Mm -hmm. And I have that on the one hand. And on the other hand, I put my money into this digital cyber secure safe. And that money is just mine. And whenever I want it, I go and I send that money to whoever I want from mm -hmm. my phone, essentially. And sure. um, doesn't matter where they are in the world, doesn't matter what time of day it is. And they know if they receive this money from me, that's good. Because in the first example, that if I do send someone money from my bank to your bank or I write your check, it still has to clear. It still has to be approved. Sure. It's, you're talking days before that happens. Days, right? So, um, and, and so one of the things we did see with all this banking stuff going on is we saw a spike in the price of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. thought that was very interesting. Yeah. And, and I think in this case, uh, you saw Bitcoin acting. Um, like a risk-off asset, I think that you know we've seen over the past couple of years that it more or less tracks with with equities and the tech sector. Um, I think there's it's fairly coupled in that sense. Um, there's strong correlation, mm -hmm. but when so, things like this happen, or when you know Canada starts freezing people's bank accounts for political protests, and when war breaks out in Ukraine and people can't get their cash yeah. out of the banks, like all of those things, there is some level of knowledge within society that this makes Bitcoin more valuable and more worth owning. And so you see that price spike and we did, we saw it, you know, it's basically up what 15% or so since last week. Mm -hmm. It's, it's been, uh, it, it hit, I think it broke through 26. It did. It was almost a 27 at, mm -hmm. at one point, but yeah, it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, it went from basically 19,000 to 25,000 in a matter of a few days. Well, I think, you know, I don't, I don't like to get caught up in too many of the, the day-to-day -day moves of it because I think they're irrelevant, but I do think that some are very relevant. And I do think that, uh, it showed, it was funny to watch. I thought, you know, you see panic about the banks and Bitcoin just starts running. Right. And what does that tell you? That tells you that people get it. People know what this is. I, I think I think there are certainly a lot of people that don't understand it, but I think there are enough people that really understood it. And I actually, when I was watching that price move a bit, I was thinking, wow, huh, people get it. Sure. It's pretty cool. What did you think? No, I thought the same. I, I it was uh, it was very comforting to me to see that when there are um, events that kind of help prove the case for Bitcoin that the market responds appropriately. Um, it makes sense that it went up uh, when that happened, and I think that the amount of um, of confidence that people had having their value stored in cash uh, definitely took a hit, and Bitcoin was the beneficiary of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it was a sign to me. It was a sign that, I don't know. I'd like to know if you agree or disagree with me on this. Um, but I viewed it as an admission almost that this was the safe place to be, that Bitcoin was the safe asset, that all this talk about it's speculative and, it's you know a Ponzi scheme or scam or whatever it is that when when um, when the shit hit the fan, people ran to Bitcoin, and I thought it was amusing, and I also thought that you used a good term, which was comforting. I was like, wow, so pe people really did get it. They really did understand it. I mean, I it is a it is a proof of concept in a way. I thought I, I agree with you. I actually thought that at the time, that same thought, like, huh, it's, it's actually proving itself here. This is a different era. This isn't 2008. And I was wondering, how is Bitcoin going to react to this? And I, I'll admit, I was a little bit, this may sound terrible, but I was a little disappointed that the Fed stepped in. Um, one, I don't think that was 
a good decision to begin with. I think that it sets a terrible precedent and you can't, sometimes people have to fail. I'm sorry. This no, is I, I think I, for. I totally agree. And, and, and to take that even further, because I think this is actually a really important point of this is that the Fed is not only restricting free market activity in this case, it's the moral hazard that I mentioned before, which is that by setting the precedent that every bank is going to get their deposits covered, regardless of what stated FDIC limits are, um, when you see that rule being broken, then now you've just told every other bank that you don't really have to take your risk management as seriously, because if you screw it up like SVB did, they're just going to bail you out. And mm -hmm. so it incentivizes bad behavior, number one. Um, but the other thing that, um, that I think is really important in this sense is that you're not um I actually lost my train of thought there but um you know so you incent this bad behavior you, and then go ahead no oh, just it's you know we know what this will lead to and and it's and and, and a 5 year old would understand this that if uh if you had a class full of five-year-olds and everyone was supposed to, I don't know, make something weird up here. When you're eating lunch, no one's allowed to go play with anything else in the room till everyone's done eating lunch till lunchtime's over. And one kid goes off and starts doing what he wants and just does his thing and no one stops him. Then every other kid in that class will think that that is an allowable thing to do now. Right. You're, you're just, Right. It's just that's human nature. So yeah. and but, then your, your argument would be, well, why are we different? Why? Why does that bank have special uh, preferential treatment over my bank? Right. And the answer that they gave to that was really ridiculous. It was something that they considered it, you know, significant to the U.S. economy, which, OK, well, a lot of things are significant to the U.S. economy doesn't mean that that they can't actually behave in a responsible manner. But the, I, I remember the other point I was going to make, which is that it, se it seems pretty apparent that the ability for somebody to come in and buy the bank was also halted by the government. Um, mm -hmm. there, were, mm -hmm. there were, I think, many large banks that were ready to step in and take over. Um, and what that would have done, which I think would have been from a market standpoint, the right move is that the depositors would have been made whole by that acquisition, but the shareholders of the bank who let their management kind of run wild with how they were managing their risk, um, they would have taken a hit. And candidly, they probably deserve to take a hit for, for management doing that. That's what happens when companies make bad decisions. Uh, they should lose value. That's how, you know, these economic cycles work. And it even goes back to when, you know, before interest rates were being raised, the money was so cheap that it gave a lot of businesses the ability to make bad decisions without the consequences of those, of those bad decisions in a normal, uh, you know, interest rate environment where you don't have assets being propped up with low interest rates. I mean, kind of think of it as this, it's just it's this crazy game a bit where um, the Federal Reserve tells you to come to them, keep your money with us, it's safe. And then when one of their customers is about to go out of business because they kind of follow the rules, they step in and print a bunch of money to save their customer. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... And I can't imagine that happening in another industry. I was just thinking if there's a place that let's just say you're a tractor company and you think that people are going to want a certain type of tractor, maybe it's got uh, bigger wheels. And so you invest really heavily in this tractor that's got these bigger wheels and it turns out your customers are really not interested. And then all, the, all of a sudden the government comes in and says, well, listen, you guys made some bad judgment calls here. It turns out you miscalculated, but don't worry about it. It's on this one's on us. Yeah. How much did you lose? And they take out the right. checkbook. You're right. No, no, no. There'll be no losses here. <laughs> right. we'll, just, we'll just write your check. It's like it never happened. And that's that's kind of crazy.
really kind well, of crazy. And I, I, I think, think that, that also contributes though to the to the change in the Bitcoin price because aside from the kind of flee to safety, I think it's also there is that telegraphing that the only way out of this type of situation is to print money. So I think you know there's very little doubt that in some way or another, whether it's directly or indirectly, there's going to be monetary inflation as a result of, of this happening. Yeah. And then you have the, I agree. And then you also have the situation where they may have stepped in too early at signature bank. And there's, mm -hmm. there's a thought that that is an anti crypto play there by the government. Well, I think there was some level of, of them saying, well, we see this as riskier because of its crypto exposure. Um, and I think that, that there was some isn't that a judgment call. Absolutely. But I think there was some, you know, there was some opportunism at play there where mm. people saw it as a point in time where they could use that as an excuse and, and make a move. And maybe that's what happened. You know, I don't want to speculate. I don't know the details of, of no. how they came to that decision. Um, but, but I think, you know, you, a lot of this is being all tied together with, you know, I think you, when you see signature and Silicon Valley there, there are kind of these weird tie-ins with FTX and Silvergate and, you know, and what a, a bank. So, you know, there is speculation that maybe that is part I of mean, it. I mean, it was, they would. They were three of the top know. banks that dealt with crypto. They were, the, weren't they, the big three banks in crypto? Three of the big ones. Yeah, I don't know. I know Silver. Three of the biggest was, it, was huge. Yeah. yeah, I'm just saying these were these were significant banks in the in the the crypto community. Now I don't know. I don't know what relationships different people have um, when it's just Bitcoin, not crypto, mm -hmm. but. Uh, it is curious. It's a, it's a, certainly a, a curious run out of events. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my, what I'm trying to figure out is really what happens next. Do things get worse or better from here? Um, I think we're, we're clearly seeing some bank issues in Europe. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Credit Suisse is having issues, and um, what's the bank? Is it uh, BNP Paribas? Yeah, that, yeah, that's uh, that's the biggest bank in France. Is having some issues. I, so you know, these are these are not um, to be taken lightly. I think that you know you got to see what happens there, but there's a lot of um, uncertainty right now in in those financial institutions mm -hmm. well, more I than saw... we've seen since 2008. This is, yeah, this is an event and this event is not finished. We know that. And I saw something before we started tonight that um, uh, Credit Suisse mm -hmm. is borrowing 50 billion from their central bank. So they're yeah. printing 50 billion. So we're going to start to see this. Um, you know, most likely thing is they're going to print money to shore up their banks because what are the what are the choices they have there's not really what am i getting wrong there i mean the only way that they can that they can get their get out of this is to either print money or raise taxes or find like, some other way you know it's like you're not gonna tax well, but the easiest thing for them is to just raise money it's just right. to print money. I mean, they print the money and they just backstop it. But this is this really is a, uh, I mean, it really is a Ponzi scheme in a lot of ways. Yeah. And and what what I'm curious about is uh, the evolution of people's mindset. And what I mean by that is, 2008 had an effect on people. I was uh i remember 2008 i was you know my my business was certainly impacted by it uh because um 
I'm in the mortgage world and there were just an enormous number of foreclosures. There's just chaos. No new loans were going out and loans are being right. foreclosed at a crazy rate. And, and there were, when, uh, when you had foreclosure day, uh, there would be protesters out on the streets of foreclosure day. Foreclosure days were foreclosure days for people who don't know. And in non-judicial states happen on the front steps of the courthouse in the county where the property is situated. And there's an auction that takes place for for the public to see. And there would be protesters month after month around the country, uh, the Occupy Wall Street protesters Mm -hmm. protesting this. And it got into the public consciousness. And then it just kind of went away. And now... It's come back. But when it's come back this time, there's an alternative. Right. And that alternative is Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin came out right after this, right? It was sort of a response to this in a lot of ways. Sure. If not all the ways. So I don't know what happens when this happens in a 13-year life or 13-year cycle, right, where people were around for the first one and the second one. Like this Mm -hmm. wasn't something that happened once in a generation that people have experienced this. And that people were really angry in 2008. I mean, this, the whole, what they call the great financial crisis. I mean, right. a lot of people got really, really hurt, really hurt. Sure. And now 13 years later, it, what we're going through is all over again. You know, this is, so, someone's not doing something right here. And the people are going to be um, justifiably angry. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how, I'll be honest, I don't know how information is really disseminated these days because I think a lot of it's decentralized. It's not three nightly newscasts and certain number of uh, national newspapers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know who's getting their information and where they're getting it from. I really don't know the breakdown of that. But I do know that this uh, this will certainly be part of the discussion in uh in certain echo chambers if that's a good way to put it right uh, and yeah and how does and how does that change people's mindset now that they're seeing it in two ways the first of those two ways is that this is twice in 13 years like what's going on here and the second being like i we have an alternative now right well uh thankfully we're not at 2008 yet um and you know, it, it remains to be seen what what could happen. You know, I, I I still think that, like for example, if if Silicon Valley Bank could get acquired by a by another bank and come out of this, those concerns could could ease, and it might you know help prevent the contagion and 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 the you know a more widespread issue. Um, I don't know if that's too optimistic or realistic or what, but, um, but I think that the second point, which is that now there's an alternative, it makes the prospect of it, at least for me, less scary than it was in 2008 when we really didn't know if the complete global economy was going to melt down and, you know, all the banks and all the institutions were going to basically mm. go under. I mean, it was, mm. it, you know, that's kind of how it was being billed at the time it happened. Um, mm. But at that point there wasn't, you know, there was gold did really well in that moment um, mm-hmm. as a flight to safety. Mm-hmm. Um, gold very, did very well good. this week. Uh, so, but now you've got, you know, a new asset that is, you know, digitally pure, far superior to gold in many ways. Um, and so I think that if people know that they have the ability to flee to something that's that secure and that reliable, then it'll be interesting to see how that plays out if things get worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, here's another thing to keep in mind is that if you want to buy gold digitally, hmm? you're not buying real gold. You're it's buying just, it's paper. paper gold. You're buying basically paper gold and it's, that's not real. And that's the only way to really do it like that. So when people are trading gold, they're not really trading gold. You don't really own gold from that. So if there was a problem, uh, you're still calling up uh, Schwab to say, uh, I need to 
to cash out. I need yeah, I mean, unless you're buying bars them. or co- bars and coins and mm-hmm. Krugerrands and keeping them in your own vault, um, mm-hmm. you're not right. typically owning gold. And that's my point, um, is that with Bitcoin, you're really owning it. Mm-hmm. And I did want to clarify a point that I made before. My point wasn't that what we're seeing right now is equivalent to 2008, because obviously this they, they did everything they could to try and make sure we didn't go there. What I'm talking about is the fact that that regular people are noticing that the government or someone stepping into bail. They're ba- Here's what regular people are hearing. The bank was bailed out and they don't like that because everyone thinks it's unfair. And that's that that has made the news and you're hearing these right. other banks and then you're still we still don't know how it plays out in Europe. And this is far from over as far as I'm concerned. I think that this was a. uh We'll see. You know, I'm going on record. I think this is a, a short-term patch for now. How how long that short-term patch will be, I don't know. You know, they they never underestimate their ability to kick the can down the road. Right. Um. So I, I but I agree uh, with that. We'll see. Mm-hmm. I, I just think things in Europe are going to play out. I, I I it's very very difficult to see where this will play out. Although, if we're going to be honest about this. People in the Bitcoin world have been predicting this with charts and graphs and data yeah, for, for years. years. So, and and the argument was, and I'm curious, was that it's basically it's just, you know, what I'm about to say, math. Yeah. People just did the math. Right. And you just do the math, and it's like, okay, the math doesn't work. It just eventually doesn't work. And if you understand. You dig a little deeper how the systems are built and what's you know what's going on with them and all this kind of stuff. And you just realize like this is not, this is you know banks are not uh, a safe place to put your money. And I know we were talking about a clip that you watched where they were setting the uh, the inflation rate at two percent. What was that clip? Yeah, it was uh, Jerome Powell talking about it. Actually, I think I can probably pull it up here. You want to see it? Um, but he was basically talking about how the 2% inflation is, is the norm because that's, um, that's what everyone's agreed it should be. So basically, you know, <laughs> saying the people didn't agree. <laughs> no, no, the no. Didn't they didn't agree to 2% of their money being stolen each year. Um, yeah, here, let me see. Um, give me one second. For the general public, for those working families of people, why 2%? Why is getting it to 2% so important? Um, so that's that has become the globally agreed, <clears throat> essentially all major central banks target 2% inflation in one form or another. Um, and uh, it, How does that help my Nevada families? How does that help people in Nevada? I'll tell you how it does. And it, it, it's, um, I guess it's, it's obviously not, uh, it's not obvious how that is, but what 2% inflation to have people believe that inflation is going to go back to 2% really anchors inflation there because you know the evidence is is and and the, the modern belief is that people's expectations about inflation actually have a real an effect on inflation if you expect inflation to go up 5% then it will you know if everyone kind of expects that because that's what businesses and households will be expecting and and it will kind of happen because they expect it so Having a two percent inflation goal, where which we had for many years. Wow, yeah. that was amazing. I had not seen that clip before. I had I'd, I knew that clip existed, and I had heard a bit of it, but I'd not seen it from beginning to end. That was really extraordinary. Yeah, it's it's pretty unbelievable that. I mean, it, you know, talk about saying the quiet part out loud. I mean, they're just he he said in a very eloquent way that it is arbitrary made up and it only happens because we say that's how it should happen. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of like, it could be like a Saturday night live skit from the eighties. <laughs> yeah. Or you know, Christopher people make fun movie, of that. Right? <laughs> right. Right. Like the argument there was, was absurd. And, uh, and really, I don't think people really understand that. And that could become part of the public consciousness once again, is that they're basically saying that they get to take 2% of your money each year. The inflation is them printing money, is them devaluing your money. Right. So they're taking 2% of your money away each year. 
Well, After they about. tell you they're taking 2% per year, and that's mm -hmm. what everybody agrees that it is because that's what they say that it is. But then when you look at something other than just a arbitrary cherry-picked basket of goods, that number is, at least right now, way more than 2% way more than two percent right that's that's their number it's it's like they agree to let you agree to let them take two percent of your money each year or let them right. steal it and they say all right that's not quite good enough we really need more like seven to eight percent each year compounding that's that's how it's happened the past few that's years that's how so. it has happened until something came along and i saw kind of shifting gears just a bit there were only 1.7 million bitcoin to be mined yeah isn't that cool i don't think people i mean when i say i don't know if people are really thinking about that we saw uh we saw a flight to safety and if these banks weren't bailed out who knows what kind of flight to safety you're going to see and if there's a, a meltdown in europe you could see a really big flight to safety we don't know um well, I, and I think maybe a, a way to put that in perspective is that, and I wish I knew the number, what percent of gold that exists on the planet is not out of the ground? I think gold is fairly close to infinite. Right. So I mean, nothing's infinite, but I'm just saying, I think it's just a function of labor. It's a function gold. of labor. With Bitcoin, there's only like eight point something percent of it yet to be mined. Mm -hmm. And so when you think of it in those terms, I think that really also, and then couple that with the fact that it's going to take until, you know, 117 years or so for that to actually happen. Um, I think that gives you maybe a, a different perspective on how scarce it really is. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know what it is? Part of it is the power of the double, right? And so mm -hmm. what you're really except in Bitcoin, you don't have a doubling, you have a halving. You have a reverse double. And we have had, uh, there have been three halvings so far, right? Mm -hmm. And by the time you get to about, and I'm doing this not because I know what coins are coming up, but by the time, I know in math, that by the time you get to your eighth double, or in this case, your eighth halving, mm -hmm. you start dealing with weird numbers so when you get to your eighth double you start dealing with very high numbers you start to really start dealing with some high numbers and when you get to your eighth having you're dealing with very very small numbers which means mm -hmm. that essentially within 32 years after its launch the the new coins coming out are essentially they're close to zero right for all intents and purposes they're just they're few and far between and and you don't have to get to that eighth multiple i think that when we get to our six having it's going to right. be very significant yeah because at that point the amount that's coming onto the market is so small that number one it, it would imply that the value has to be much greater in order for you know assuming things are still running the way that they're running and growing you know if they continue to grow as they are i mean we're still seeing all-time high hash rates you know I, at one point i checked today it was 312 was you know where we're sitting it's like how much more powerful could it get and how much more valuable would it be at that point? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's something that I, I think I'm going to maybe take some time to think through, which is this idea of, you know, I think it was Einstein who said that the the eighth wonder of the world was compounding interest, right? Yeah, I've heard. I don't know who said it, but yes. A lot of people have said it. Um, but I think Einstein was certainly one of them. But but the, there's this whole thing about the power of compounding interest is that famous story where a, the king that was brought chess was asked what, what the person wanted. And the person said he wanted one grain of wheat for doubling for every square on the chessboard. And by the time they got to like the 10th square, the, I think the king had him killed. <laughs> you know, uh, something like that. Maybe right. a little higher than the 10th. Um, but, but it's that power of compounding interest. And Bitcoin is something unique that I, I can't really think i've ever heard someone discussing it before which is um the power of having interest mm -hmm. is that you're owning this thing as a smaller and smaller amount can possibly come out which makes essentially what you have even though it's technically not more scarce 
um, the lack of new supply coming out does make it more of a rarity. Right. Right. It, like it's just a simple supply and so, demand. But that maybe maybe that's this idea that it's like, you know, you hold Bitcoin to get through, like I'm going to buy Bitcoin and my plan is to get through three halvings. That's my goal. Or th in the terms of investing, it'd be like three doubles. Mm -hmm. And it may be, I don't know what happens to the price of the coin because there, there are a number of macroeconomic events that are going to affect that. But I think there's maybe some, maybe not, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's sort of this this doubling in reverse. I've never no, really I, thought about that way before. No, absolutely. I think, I think that's correct. And I think it just, most people aren't, you know, they're not thinking about the price of it with real in relation to the scarcity of it. They're thinking, you know, mo most people who are buying Bitcoin right now are, are honestly not just saying, I'm going to buy it, put it in cold storage and forget about it for, you know, three halvings or whatever. I think, so I think that that's, that's just not a way that most people think about it. I, but, you know, I've said all along, I don't see this as, you know, talk to me in five years. If you want to talk about, you know, price fluctuations. I'm not really mm -hmm. concerned about the volatility in the price because we're just still so early with it. Mm -hmm. Well, I do think though that um, it will be interesting to see what happens for a number of reasons at that having, which is, is coming up. It'll be here before we know it. It's basically about a, year. a year. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be some really interesting things. And, and depending on what the, you know, the, uh, the geopolitical climate and banking climate looks like over the next 12 months could have some very interesting implications for uh, Bitcoin's adoption. I, I'm not, I know price will come with it, but Bitcoin's adoption. I know that when we have these events, adoption goes up. Yeah, the price goes up, yep. but we see the number of new wallets coming online. It, it, it increases adoption. Well, it's, you know, again, people who are on the it, fence it, go over the fence. People like to see proofs of concept, right? They mm -hmm. want to see that, okay, this is actually doing what it was designed to do. And that's when you get people to, to buy into it. Mm -hmm. One of the things I thought I want to add in here is when I watched the price go up as I was reading the news of the banks collapsing, and I thought when people see that the price of Bitcoin goes up when the banks are collapsing, <laughs> that it's, it's kind of a simpleton way of thinking where it's like, oh, all these things are going down. And then someone says, well, that one's going up. And then immediately people will think, oh, I, I want that one. <laughs> like that seems like it, that seems like the right answer. It's kind of weirdly wired into you. So I don't know. I, and I don't know how many people are paying attention because it happened on the weekend, too. That's true, too. Um, but it's it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next several weeks. So, yeah, I don't think we're done with this. I, I don't think this is the last of this story. I just don't. I think they would like for this to be the last of the story and calm some people down. And that may be in the U S but this is, I think this is more of a worldwide problem than just a, a U.S. problem. Well, it, it's also, and it's that not, may be better or worse for the U S I don't know. It, it's, it is a multi-dimensional problem as well. It's mm, not just sure. a banking problem. And so it's, there's, you know, if you look at what happened leading up to 2008, there were multiple pieces of that puzzle that kind of all came together to cause the, the huge problem. And I think at this point we're seeing maybe what could be, you know, a few pieces of those that, that puzzle that are very different though. I mean, you've got, mm -hmm. there's different political climate, different geopolitical events. There's, you know, war in Eastern Europe, there's all of this stuff. It's like, you know, you're still on the tail of, of the pandemic and everything that goes along with that. Like you've got all of these weird external factors that we don't know how they're all going to kind of mesh together to, mm. to move us in which direction. So I think mm. it's, it's interesting times. It's, mm -hmm. it's also, uh, I think a worthy analogy here is complex systems nested in complex systems, nested in complex systems. Right. You know, this is just, uh, interesting times, certainly interesting times yep. on, on lots of levels. All right. Well, for, uh, those of you who have recently adopted Bitcoin because of, uh, bank runs, we're happy to help you, uh, figure out how to buy it, store it, set up an inheritance plan around your Bitcoin, run your own node. Uh, you can reach us 
at btcbutlers.com. Uh, info at BTC Butlers is our email on Twitter, BTC Butlers. Uh, like, comment, subscribe. If you have any questions, please reach out. Uh, we would love to hear from you, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Matt. Bye.